if we refuse to say things that say that we believe what we don't believe. We refuse to sign petitions that we don't believe in. I would say for it to take it to our own our own world, don't fly the pride flag or don't admit that, you know, you're a horrible person and have white privilege uh, when you're expected to do that. This sort of thing is going to cost us. But if we don't do it, we lose our souls. We eventually become so accustomed to capitulating to what the world wants that we forget what truth really is. Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. I'm Andy Coleman, your host, and today I am joined by Rod Dreher. Many of our listeners likely already are familiar with Rod Dreher's work. He's an accomplished author, a cultural commentator. He's a senior editor for the American Conservative, and he's just been a thoughtful voice as he's looked out over the landscape of the culture and especially how the church relates to all of those changes. We're very grateful to have him with us today. Rod, thanks for joining the program. Oh, Andy, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, I have several questions, so I'm going to go rapid fire, and I'm going to jump right in. One of the books that you wrote, and this was recent, it was Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents, and that was recently published. Was it 2019 or was it 2020 that it came out? 2020. It came out uh, a year ago this past September. Okay, so that's been a busy year. There's been a lot going on, a very relevant book. And to our listeners that have not read this book, I would highly encourage you to get your hands on it, to digest it. It's well worth the time. Please do so. But Rod, why did you end up writing Live Not By Lies? You know, Andy, uh, I've been writing about the culture war for a long time as a journalist and various aspects of it. Back in 2015, though, I got a call from a, a physician at the Mayo Clinic. We had a mutual friend, and he said, look, I know you're a journalist, Rod. I need to tell somebody this. My elderly mother lives with me and my wife, but she was born in Czechoslovakia and uh, was a young woman there when communism took over. And she spent four years in a communist prison for her religious faith. She refused to stop going to church when the communists told her to. And you know, she came to America and married, and he, the guy was born in America. But he said, my mom is now telling me that the things she sees happening in America today remind her of what it was like when communism first came to Czechoslovakia. Well, I heard the guy telling me that, and I said, gosh, that sounds alarmist. But I thought, well, you know, my mom is old, and she watches a lot of cable news, and she gets worked up over things. It's probably this lady's probably being alarmist. But I made a point, Andy, of whenever I would travel in the years following and talk to people who came out of the Soviet Union or the Soviet bloc countries and escaped to America to freedom, I would just ask them, are the things you're seeing now happen in America today in terms of cancel culture, things like that, does it remind you of communism? Every single one of them said yes. And if you asked them, uh, if you kept talking to them about it, you would find out how angry they were that Americans 
just won't see it because we Americans think it can't happen here. So what I did with this book is I I tried to explain to my to my readers, to American readers, why what's happening now with cancel culture, critical race theory, a lot of LGBT stuff, why it is like communism, but also ways it is unlike communism. And secondly, the second half of the book is made up of strategies uh, for handling this, for the church handling this, that I got from traveling over there to Russia and the former communist countries of Eastern Europe, and just asking Christians who didn't leave, but who stayed behind and had to endure this persecution, how can we in the American church prepare ourselves for what's to come? Well, that's why I think it's so relevant. And in my opinion, I think that this is a book that extends far beyond the American borders and coastlines. I think this is a, a helpful resource for Christians that are struggling with the changing times, whether that's in Europe or Africa or Asia, the Middle East. Good about that. The book is now in um, 11 different languages. Praise God. Including almost all of the Eastern European countries, because here's the weird thing about it. Uh, when I was in Poland, this is where it first came up, where I became aware of it. When I was in Poland in 2019 doing research on this book, I was shocked to discover that so many young Poles, Polish Christians, who had never known communism, they were born after communism, they had no idea what happened. Their parents, by and large, had not educated them about what that was like for understandable reasons. They didn't want their kids to be burdened with all this dark history. The problem with it, though, is it left these kids, kids now, they're young adults, it left them completely uh, vulnerable to this new form of totalitarianism coming from the West. I kept hearing over and over talking to young Catholics, because Poland's a Catholic country, Catholics in their 20s who really are believers, who go to church, and they were all telling me that within 10 years, they expect Poland to go the way of Ireland, to be completely secularized, like virtually overnight. I'm 54 years old. I came up in the era of Pope John Paul II. And to me, I mean, I'm not a Catholic, but Poland was just this fortress of faith, and that faith helped them resist communism. Well, that was then. We live in very different times now, and they are telling me that the things coming from the West, uh, you know, gender theory, things like that, it's just eviscerating the church there. And so they need to hear this message as well as, as as we Americans do, but how strange it is that the message came to them via an American. That's right. And that's true of, of young people in so many different nations. They just have to capture this cultural context, their, their spiritual heritage. There's so much there, but so many have just not heard. In your book, Live Not By Lies, you discuss uh, soft totalitarianism, and you, di- you make distinctions between that and hard totalitarianism. Can you just break that down briefly for our listeners? Sure. Thanks for the question. Um, Our idea of totalitarianism in America today is formed by the Cold War, by Stalinism, and by reading George Orwell's 1984. Uh, A hard totalitarian state is one in which the state has all the power and it enforces its, um, its beliefs by inflicting pain, fear, and terror on the people. We don't have that. We don't have gulags here and we don't have secret police. So a lot of people are like, what are you talking about totalitarianism? It doesn't look like totalitarianism. And I say, yeah, because it's a different kind. I I think this looks more like what Aldous Huxley uh, had uh, presented to us in his novel, Brave New World. 
it was a totalitarianism, but it was a totalitarianism that depended for its control of the people on uh, manipulating their desire for comfort and pleasure. And uh, But in both cases, people gave up their freedom. I think this is the soft totalitarianism is a much um, more insidious one because everybody wants to be comfortable. Everybody wants to be happy. But what, what the, the new regime, when I say regime, I'm talking about not just the government, but also all the institutions in civil society. What it's telling us is that in order to be safe and happy, we'd have to give up our liberties. A lot of people are willing to do that because they don't understand what's at stake. Second distinction between the kind of totalitarianism, the soft totalitarianism we have now, and the and the other is, and traditionally totalitarianism is it describes a society in which all the power belongs to the state, and we don't have that here, but and but we do have totalitarianism. Why is that? Because when every single major institution in society, whether we're talking universities, media, medicine, law, uh, even the military. Business, big, big business, especially woke capitalism, when they've all gone woke and they're all speaking from the same um, script, then you don't really need the state. I mean, if people are losing their jobs or not being hired because of their Christian faith or because they won't, uh, they won't submit to critical race theory or whatever the criteria are. It doesn't, you don't, you don't have to have the state to do this. And that's something that people really need to wake up to and understand, especially conservatives like me. You know, we, I, I, I'm 54 years old. I was raised under Reaganism. And in the era that I, where I came of age, big business was seen as, if not a positive, at least neutral. That has completely changed. And now the greatest enemy, I think, of, of, of traditional Christian faith is woke capitalism. Well, a lot of that, you talk about them all reading from the same script, a lot of that has wormed its way also into the church. And in many ways, what we're dealing with when we're talking about these secular, these radical ideas, I've heard it described as almost a pseudo-religious ideology. Would you speak to that? What are we dealing with? You're absolutely correct about that. The, um, in fact, the best way to understand wokeness, that's the term we use to describe just in general, the whole idea of you know, critical race theory, gender ideology, all of that. And the best way to understand it is as a pseudo religion. I mean, it's not about politics. It expresses itself politically, but ultimately these people believe in absolute morals and uh, they believe in separating the world between good and evil and, dis- and uh, dividing good and evil on the basis of, of race, of political conviction, that sort of thing. And uh, it is, they're absolutely fervent about it. They are total zealots. They're, they're secular fundamentalists. So there's that. And um, it's also the case that uh, the church is so vulnerable to this because soft totalitarianism, wokeness, presents itself as uh, compassionate. You know, the, the idea that you can't stand up for male and female uh, without uh, risking hurting the feelings of transgender people or people struggling with gender dysphoria. I mean, and therefore, so therefore you can't talk about it. This is so manipulative. You know, I, I write in the book about this uh, intellectual. He died a few years ago, uh, Rene Girard. He was a Frenchman who taught at Stanford for many years and was a Christian, a Catholic. And he said around 2000, he wrote in one of his books that uh, we are seeing coming into being a form of Christianity 
that is, uh, and, and a form of, of living in, in public life that is uh, a, a premonition, I guess you would say, or of the Antichrist. What he meant was this. He said, when the Antichrist comes, he will be more Christian than Christ. He will present himself that way. According to Gerard, this new uh, idea, this totalitarianism that's coming uh, by preaching compassion tries to, to, to take care of the victims and to present itself as defending victims, which is a very Christian thing to do. But it is taking over a totalitarian form of, of command in order to do this. So it is taking away the freedom of everybody else. Uh, under the banner of protecting victims. And that's the thing I want Christians to see that because we're so uh, manipulable on that point, we want to be compassionate. And that's a good thing. But that we're being manipulated by those who do not have our best interest at heart. What you're describing almost to me sounds like the idolatry of victimhood. We, we are elevating this to uh, an ultimate position. We will return to the podcast momentarily. But first, a word from our sponsor. Being a Christian today can be hard. This is true if you live in a heavily persecuted country like Iran or areas where cultural pressures against Christians are growing fast, like America and Europe. Fortunately, none of us have to stand alone. We are part of a giant body, one huge spiritual family that spans the globe. That is the church. The Christian Emergency Alliance is committed to helping the church stand, regardless of the pressures to come. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the Christian Emergency Alliance strives to help our spiritual family when persecution hits. We also strengthen the church by supporting ministry that makes Christ famous, defends biblical truth, and prepares fellow believers for challenges ahead. You have the opportunity to make a huge impact in this work today. Become a monthly financial ally of the Christian Emergency Alliance by signing up at christianemergency.com. Your support of $25 a month or a gift in any amount will bless those who need help in these darkening days. Help the church stand today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Register today at www.christianemergency.com. And now, back to the show. But Rod, I'm also curious, why in your opinion are we as Christians so easily manipulated on this? Yeah, I think because we lack confidence in what we believe, and I, I think it's pr- very clear that the churches, all churches, have failed for decades to really disciple uh, their people. Um, there's a, I wrote about this in my previous book, Live Not By Lies. I wrote about this research that a sociologist of religion at the University of Notre Dame, Christian Smith, research he began to publish in the year 2005 in which he talked about how the real, the de facto religion of American Christians across all denominations, it's something he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a pseudo-Christianity. Well, what does it believe? Its beliefs are very basic. That God exists, that he loves us and wants us to be happy, he wants us to be nice, and you never really have uh, have to talk to him unless you need something. Well, God does exist. God does love us. God does, God does want us to be nice. But this, this is not Christianity. This is not biblical Christianity. This is a fake Christianity, a Christianity without tears that doesn't require us to sacrifice, and it doesn't require us to take hard stands. And it is a, a form of, it's kind of a chaplaincy to middle-class comfort. All of us, in one way or another, have been uh, acculturated by churches that, without even meaning to, 
have bought into MTD. And I think that's one reason we are so vulnerable because we want so badly to be nice, to be respected by the world, uh, which is a great thing. I want that too, but not at the expense of the gospel. And I'll tell you why this is so dangerous, Andy. There's a, a great movie that came out a couple of years ago called um, A Hidden Life. Uh, it's based on a true story about an Austrian Catholic farmer, uh, Franz Jägerstater, uh, who lived in a little village up in the Alps, a uh, little Catholic village. Everybody went to church. He thought that all the, the evil of the world would never reach them in their little remote village. Well, in fact, Nazism did come to the village. Franz and his wife were the only ones in that Christian village who did not accept Nazism. And ultimately, Franz was killed. He was martyred by the Nazis because he refused to sign allegiance to Hitler. He felt like that would be burning a, pin, a pinch of incense to Caesar. And I, watching the movie, I thought, what was it about Franz and his wife that allowed them, the only ones in this church-going village, to see the evil of communism for what it was, not only to recognize that, but to be willing to resist even at the point of giving their lives, in Franz's case, of giving his life. We need that. In the, the movie, there's a scene in which Franz goes to visit the local church and sees an artist painting biblical pictures on the wall to decorate the church. The artist tells him, you know, Jesus, uh, a lot of people admire Jesus. They admire the stories in the Bible, but Jesus didn't call admirers. He called disciples. And you can tell the difference between a disciple and an admirer when it comes time to suffer. Every single person in that village they all call themselves Christians, but they were really admirers of Christ. Only Franz and his wife were real disciples. What I want to do in this book uh, with Live Not By Lies is raise the alarm saying we have got to be disciples, not just admirers. Or we're not going to make it through the persecution to come. I think you're accurately describing the vulnerabilities that we have as Christians, as our churches, as what we're producing in our churches. Are they really disciples? I take a hard look at the popular culture in Sunday schools. Is it really to be fun and games, or are we really preparing them with spiritual meat that's going to allow them to be launched into the world and potentially called names, uh, mistreated? Um, are they going to stand for the faith, or in that impulse to be safe and comfortable, are they going to walk away? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Four years ago, I was at a, uh, went to speak at a conservative evangelical college, and one of the things I talked about in my first lecture was um, the importance of spiritual disciplines as part of the life of discipleship. And there's a big audience there of undergraduates. And at the end of my talk, there was Q&A time. A young woman raised her hand and said, sir, I don't understand what you mean by spiritual disciplines. Why isn't it enough for us to love Jesus with all our hearts as our parents taught us? And I told her, I said, look, it, that's where things start. We have to start with loving Jesus with all our hearts. But that emotion is not enough. We have to take that, that passion for Christ and, and uh, put it in, and pour it into forms of living that train our hearts. Otherwise, we're not going to make it. And I could tell she didn't understand what I was talking about. Well, after the talk, a, a professor at that college came to me and said, listen, what the way that young girl, what, what her, her point of view that she expressed in the question, that's how 99% of these undergraduates here think, because they come to us out of church youth groups, they come to this evangelical college, they're living around people just like them. And then they leave here when they graduate and they get out into the world. The first time someone says, oh, what Christians believe is mean, 
they fall apart because they haven't been given that deep discipleship and deep teaching. That is the vulnerability that's not just among evangelicals, it's among all American Christians. And I, as I'm saying this, I'm coming to uh, what comes to mind is the image, uh, the face of this amazing old Baptist pastor in Russia I met. He, Yuri Sipko is his name. He is in my, my book, Live Not By Lies. He was raised under Stalinism. All the men in his little Baptist uh, community were taken to the gulag by Stalin. The women had to raise those kids and make sure they were formed in the faith. And uh, Yuri talked about leading the Baptist of Russia through all kinds of persecution. He said to me at the very end, we were standing there on a street in Moscow, the snow was starting to fall. And he said, go back to America and tell the church that if you're not prepared to suffer for the faith, really suffer, then your faith is meaningless. That's a hard, hard teaching, Andy, but it's the only thing that's going to get us through. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that you are working to sound the alarm let me just dive right in to your book, Live Not By Lies. What does it mean to live not by lies? You know, Christians right now are perplexed. They're confused. A lot of the world around them is looking increasingly alien. Um, some of them are having fear, perhaps, and stepping out and actively taking uh, affirmative steps to counter what they see as wrong. But what is Live Not By Lies? And if people aren't able to take those active steps, what can we do at a minimum uh, that Alexander Solzhenitsyn was writing about when he penned this essay by the same name. In 1974, before, just before the Soviets <laughs> sent him into exile, uh, Solzhenitsyn, who was the most prominent dissident of the communist world, he sent a, a message out to his followers saying, listen, it's not, uh, it's not in us to go stand out on Red Square and shout what we believe is true. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying thing to do, and it may not even do any good under totalitarianism. But one thing we can do is refuse to say that we believe things that we don't actually believe. He said, because the whole Soviet system depended on, uh, on lies, on everybody pretending to believe that they, they actually believed in all this junk. Um, and uh, he said that we can undermine the system, Solzhenitsyn did, if we refuse to say things that say that we believe what we don't believe. We refuse to sign petitions that we don't believe in. I would say for it to take it to our own our own world, don't fly the pride flag or don't admit that, you know, you're a horrible person and have white privilege uh, when you're expected to do that. This sort of thing is going to cost us. But if we don't do it we lose our souls. We eventually become so accustomed to capitulating to what the world wants that we forget what truth really is. Um, when I was in Prague in, in, the, uh, Czech, in the Czech Republic, I was talking to this woman, Camilla Bendova. She and her late husband, Dr. Václav Benda, were the only Christians in the inner circle of dissidents around Václav Havel, who was a leader of the dissident movement. And I asked her, I said, uh, Camilla, was it difficult for y'all? Because the, the, the dissidents around Havel, they were all hippies and they had really elaborate and vivid sex lives. And the, but the, the Bendis were serious Christians. She said, Rod, it wasn't difficult at all because in a situation like totalitarianism, you knew that uh, the, most, the, the rarest quality was courage, was the refusal to live by lies. So when you found somebody who was willing to stand up and say, I'm not going to live by lies, no matter what it costs me, you knew that person had to be your best friend. She told me that almost all the Christians in their world back then capitulated. They conformed. They, um, and, and they were useless. You know, they kept their heads down. 
So this is what it means to live not by lies in whatever small way you can do not capitulate no matter what it costs. But if you're not willing to suffer for your faith, including suffering the loss of respect, uh, perhaps a loss of your job, the loss of your status, even if it comes to the loss of your freedom, then you're not going to have what it takes to make it through. Just to bring it back to what we were describing about young people launching out into the world, young Christians, I think it's important to arm them with this idea to live not by lies. And that is, if you're on a college campus, you're in a, a workplace, that is when you're called hateful or you're called a bigot and you know in your heart that that's not true. You don't have to be confined by that. You don't have to be defined by that. You don't have to buy into it. Those are lies being uh, thrown against us and that can't shake us from Christ. I think there's so many ways for us to think through this that's really constructive and healthy for us. Can I just say real quick, Andy, that this is why it's so important that we pay attention to the to the experience of the persecuted church, not only under communism, but the persecuted church in our own time and other parts of the world. Amen. This is normal Christianity. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to an evangelical friend who works with the persecuted church all around the world. And he said that what's happening, starting to happen now in America is simply the American church joining history. Yeah. Because this is what it has been like for Christians around the world since the very beginning and even still is. And so, you know, we why should things be different for us? But uh, so we have to have that kind of faith, a faith that does not want to conform, a faith that is willing to embrace suffering and realizing that if we join our suffering to Christ, that uh, this is a blessing. And we may, even if we have to give our lives, you know, God forbid, but even if it comes to that, we have to have hope that God will not only reward us for our suffering, but will in some sense use our sacrifice to, um, to redeem the world. So I've worked with persecuted Christians in, in many areas of the world, primarily in the Middle East and Central Asia. But I think that all that we're talking about today really points to our need for the global church. We need to learn from them at the same time that they might need practical help right now today. They have so much to inform us, to equip us, the context. That's what we're trying to do with this podcast. And I'm grateful that you spent the time interviewing these people who lived under communism and suffered for their faith. Those are nutrients for the body. Those are spiritual nutrients that we need today to help the church stand. So I'm really grateful for your perspective. When we think about preparing a future underground church, maybe in the West, maybe very soon, um, you, you've already talked about a willingness to suffer, kind of cultivating that willingness to suffer and pay a cost for our faith in Christ. You also talk in your book a lot about the importance of small groups. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about that. This was one of the things that I had not anticipated when I went over to Eastern Europe to interview people is the central importance of small groups of really dedicated Christians to keeping the faith alive. You know, I dedicate the book to the memory of this Catholic priest, Father Tomislav Kolakovich. He died in 95, I think. Uh, I didn't know anything about him until I went to Bratislava and found out his story. In 1943, he was in his home city of Zagreb in Croatia doing work against the Nazis. He got a tip that the Gestapo was coming for him. So he escaped the country and went to his mother's homeland, Slovakia, lived under an assumed name, Kolakovic, and began to teach in a Catholic university there. What he did was tell his students when he arrived, he said, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is the Soviets are going to be ruling this country when it's over. And the first thing they're going to do 
as attack the church, persecute the church. We have to get ready for it. So what he did was start to put together small groups of believing Christians, usually young people, but also others who wanted to help. They would come together regularly to meet, to pray, to study, but also to talk about what they saw happening in their society and to decide on what action, what concrete action can we take to prepare for the coming persecution. Within two years, these small groups, these Kolakovich groups had spread all over Slovakia and you had young people preparing themselves. Now the Catholic bishops of Slovakia, they came down hard on Father Kolakovich. They said, Father, you're scaring people. You're being alarmist. It's not gonna happen here. But Father Kolakovich had studied the communist mind because he had wanted to be a seminarian, uh, sorry, a missionary to Russia. So he ignored the bishops and kept working. Sure enough, Andy, in 1948, when the Iron Curtain fell over that country, the first thing the communists did was come after the church. And the network that Father Kolakovich had set up became the backbone overnight for the underground church, which was the only meaningful resistance to communism for the next 40 years. I had dedicated my book to him because I believe that here in the America and more broadly in the West, we are in a Kolakovich moment. Now is the time for Christians from all creeds, from all denominations to come together in, in these small groups to talk about what's happening and to lay down the lines of, of preparation for what are we gonna do with our, for our people uh, when the persecution starts? I was just at a conference um, last weekend, the Touchdown Magazine conference, and um, I heard uh, someone speak about this, a Protestant speak about this, and he said, we have got to start in our churches putting a line item in the budget to financially support people who, in our congregations, who lose their jobs because they've taken a stand. Practical things like that, Andy, are what matters so much, but we can't wait until the persecution starts before we start. We've got to start preparing right now. I think that's spot on as we're thinking about the future underground church that needs to be able to stand up. You mentioned a, a parallel polis and that families and religious fellowships and underground seminars can create this counterculture that's, so, that's going to be so important. Um, it's these alternative social structures that fall outside of official approval, and we have to be prepared to stand that up. And I like what you pointed out in your book where you said that we got to get past. We can't be afraid to be weird in society's eyes and that families are going to constitute essentially resistance cells, and that parents really have to think through their roles as parents and be intentionally countercultural, model moral and spiritual courage, teach their kids great stories, the good, not just what we're against, but good stories that show what we're for. All of this is very important for us to, to consider as we're preparing, like you say. Yeah, yeah. Let, me, I, let me tell a story here. This, this is one of my favorite stories that I got in my travels. Again, it goes back to the Benda family in Prague, just amazing people. Uh, Václav and Camilla Benda raised uh, five kids in the middle of communism while they were being persecuted, even while Václav went to prison for four years for his anti-communist work. And all of those kids came through as faithful Christians. They're now adults with kids of their own, and they are faithful, even though the Czech Republic is the most atheistic country in Europe today. I was asking Camilla, the mother, um, I said, how did you do this? You know, because you had to send your kids to communist schools like everybody else. What did um, what, what did you do to, to help keep this, keep things strong, keep them strong? And she said that um, 
the thing that uh, most important thing we did was to sit down and talk to them constantly about what was going on and help them to discern truth from lies in, in this world. But she said, I also read to them a lot when they were little. And, and she's telling me this standing in their apartment in Prague with, you know, the 14 foot ceilings with bookshelves lining from floor to ceiling all over the room. I said, well, what did you read to him? She said, well, two or three hours a night, no matter what, I would read to the kids and I'd read them myths. I'd read them good literature. And I read a lot of Tolkien to them. Tolkien, that's interesting. Why Tolkien? And she said, because we knew that Mordor was real. And that was such a profound thing to hear, Andy, because what she was telling me was that these kids could not understand what Marxism was. They were, they were little kids. They couldn't understand the, the fullness of what their parents and their parents' friends were fighting, but they could understand Mordor. They could understand dragons. They could understand what it meant for uh, fellowship, the fellowship of the ring to come together and risk everything for the sake of the good. And they were able to reason by analogy to the people who had come to their mom and dad's house to pray, to talk about what was going on, and to hold these seminars in the house to keep alive the memory of what it meant to be faithful, what it meant, what life was like before communism came. And uh, so in this way, Camilla prepared those children, their moral imagination, to not only to hate evil, but more importantly, to love the good. That was a powerful thing to me because uh, she, it wasn't one of these quick and easy things she did. I mean, think about the time that that took from this lady's life when she was having to raise kids while keeping a job and her husband is in prison, but she never, ever, ever neglected reading to form the moral imagination of her kids. And they're all incredible kids. They're now adults. They're so brave. They stand in the public square. They take stands. Even in this atheistic country, they don't have to worry about going to prison for their stands, but it's not easy to be a faithful Christian in the Czech Republic. But it all started with mom and dad. Mom and dad setting this example because they, oh, those kids told me that our dad, he died in 99. Our dad was our hero. He was like... Um, Gary Cooper and High Noon, you know, he was the only, one of the only ones to take a stand when everybody else was being cowardly. That inspired those kids. They remember that. It formed them. It told them, this is who I want to be. And of course, their mother too, nurturing them, nurturing their imaginations, nurturing their faith. It was massive. But this is not something you can just decide to wake up and all right, I'm going to do this now. We have to start somewhere. But it's the sort of thing that I encourage your listeners to start right now. Don't let another day pass without sitting down and talking about what does a program like this look for our kids, for our family? Because the, fa the, the, the home has to be like a domestic monastery, a place where we form our children and ourselves to be in the image of Christ and to be disciplined by by the faith and by prayers and by things like that. So uh, it, if we're going to build a, a family and a, 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 a children and a church that is resilient in the face of the persecution, it has to start in the home. Well, you have extracted some wonderful lessons and insights uh, in this book from uh, persecuted Christians. Again, the book is called Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. We're speaking with Rod Dreher. Rod, my last question for you, and then I'll let you go. Is this, like I started out this interview, I asked, this was published in 2020, and a lot has transpired in the months since it was published. Real quick, bring us up to speed. You know, you, you wrote this work, and now a lot has transpired. 
we've we've covered a lot of ground as as a country and as a world. What are you seeing, and uh, what's confirming what you wrote about, and what's turning your mind in a different direction? What else are you paying attention to? Well, I, we've seen the acceleration of all the trends I talk about in Live Not By Lies. I, I finished the manuscript in early March of 2020, just when COVID was starting to hit. We went on to see COVID and then the George Floyd uh, killing and the riots and everything that the, this enormous backlash, this what I believe is a form of totalitarianism, the takeover of critical race theory of all the major institutions and schools. All of this has happened in the last year. And there has been so little resistance to it. There is resistance. People like Christopher Rufo, for example, is, and some of the parents in Loudoun County, Virginia, they're fighting back. And God bless them for that. We need to have more of that. But all, I think the thing that has really struck me, Andy, uh, over the past year since the book came out is how fast it's all happening and how little actual resistance there has been from the American church. And it tells me how weak we are. And I don't know whether it's a matter of we're afraid to be thought of as hateful. We're afraid to take stands. I, I talked to a, a pastor uh, a few months ago and I said, pastor, you know, transgenderism is a huge thing now in the schools and in, in youth culture. What are you doing to prepare your congregation for, you know, living as Christians and facing this as Christians with compassion, but also with uh, absolute rock solid conviction that this, we will not accept these lies. He said, well, we're not talking about it. I said, why aren't you talking about it? He goes, well, we don't want politics in the church. I said, Pastor, this is not about politics. This is about Christian living. This is absolutely central to where we are today. And if you're not talking about it because you don't want conflict, you are not preparing your people. So one of the things I've become more aware of and conscious of and, and uh, emphatic about is that people need to wake up and understand that this is not going away soon and that sooner or later, every single one of us is going to have to take a stand. And whether or not we are able to take that stand on the side of Christ in the future depends on the decisions we make right now. So, um, it's only going to accelerate faster and faster and faster. We are not going to vote ourselves out of this. This is one thing that you know, really, you know, I'm a conservative Christian, and this is one thing that really frustrates me about our own side is we tend to place so much hope in politics. We think that um, politics are going to save us. Well, they're not. Politics are important, but we are, as I said, we're not going to be able to vote ourselves out of this. So if you're waiting for the next election, ah, oh, we'll just get rid of the Democrats and then everything will be okay you're really deluding yourselves. This is a cultural issue and a spiritual issue more than anything else. And politics follows from all that. Well, I really appreciate your time, your perspective. If our listeners wanted to get a hold of your book, Live Not By Lies, or follow your work, how can they go about doing that? Well, I write uh, every day on the AmericanConservative.com. I write a blog there. I have a Substack paid newsletter called RodDreer.substack.com, where I write exclusively about spiritual issues. And they can follow me on Twitter at RodDreer, R-O-D-D-R-E-H-E-R. I would also suggest at the top of my Twitter page, you don't have to follow Twitter in order to see this, you can download a, um, a study guide that I prepared for Live Not By Lies that will help discussion. It's um, It's already format and everything just it's free to download just click on that download and let that lead discussions in your small groups in your churches and your sunday schools but uh, i thank you so much for your interest in in this handy because look this is the thing i'm an eastern orthodox christian but one of the things i learned from doing this this research 
is the importance of building bonds and, and links across denominations. Because it, one of the things I found out is that when these people were in prison, they knew these Christians, they knew that they weren't put into communist prison because they were Protestant, because they were Catholic, because they were Orthodox. They were put in these prisons because they were Christian. And they were able to form these tight bonds of fellowship together without giving up their denominational distinctives. But they knew that the things that united them under persecution were far greater than things that divided them. So I want to help bring that message too from the persecuted church to the church here in America. And I appreciate my, you, my uh, non-Orthodox brother, for having me on to, for this conversation. Absolutely. Well, profoundly grateful for your time, your perspective, and I hope we can have you on again sometime before too long. Well, happy to do it. All right. Thank you, Rod. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.